Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. And I see what they have, and I recognize in them that they take it for granted, and I'll look at my wife and I'll say, they have no idea how good they've got it. And she'll look back and say, yeah, they really don't. And what I'm realizing is that that same thing happens to adults, is that sometimes we have no idea how good we've got it, you know. And just now, when you can't go to the movie theater and you can't go to the mall and, you know, you want to go to a restaurant and you realize, oh, yeah, I guess we're not doing that. And all of a sudden, you become thankful for things that you didn't realize were not a guaranteed right, but were really a privilege. I remember in times past seeing news clips of people in China wearing masks just while they were out and about in the street. And never once did I give thanks that that wasn't the the state of things in the United States of America. Well, now, if we ever get back there again, certainly I will be thanking God for something that I didn't even know I needed to thank God for. And so there certainly is a a gratitude that that is is forming, I don't think just in my heart, but I think in in all of our hearts that that realize we've taken a lot of things for granted. Another thing I'm really thankful for in the middle of all this is that, you know, God says that nothing can happen without him being aware of it. And, and whether or not God is the author of this or whether he just let it slip through, uh, certainly he is in control of it. He could have stopped it. He could have kept it from happening, but he didn't. And, and I believe that he is using it as a wake-up call for the church and also the nation, and also the world. And I'm, I'm actually grateful for that, because it reminds me of his gentleness. There's a, a verse in the Psalms that says, In wrath, please, Lord, remember mercy. And when you look at how God judged his people when they were walking astray, he didn't come down on them with a hammer. He did it incrementally. He would be very measured and very gracious in the way that he would let something slip through, And it would get their attention. And I'm just thankful to God for his grace in all of this. Because as bad as things are, they're really not that bad compared to what's coming. When you read the final judgment of God that's going to come. And so I appreciate his grace because it is waking people up. People are realizing that not only have they taken things for granted, but they've, they've kind of become very independent and forgotten about God. And people are coming back to that place of realizing that he's God, that he's in control, and that we need to wake up. It's as if God is saying, hey, hey, hey. And we're going, hey, 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 I get it. I understand. One last thing that I've noticed is coming out of this is that there is a real sense of unity that still exists in a world that's very divided. And, and I'm really grateful to be seeing that. I mean, we have divisions in our country and in our world that are unbelievable. Political divides, national divides, ideological divides. And really in the middle of all of this, we're seeing that we still have some things in common. Because when something comes along that affects all of us, people are willing to still work together. And so right now we're hearing Democrats giving credit to Republicans. We're hearing Republicans give credit to Democrats. And, and it's wonderful to see. I read this morning that even Vladimir Putin, who really isn't, I wouldn't call him a friend of our nation, but he sent an entire plane load of aid to our nation. Now, I hope it's not a Trojan horse. <laughs> I, guess, I guess time will tell. But if we take that at face value, that's really an amazing thing to see that even people that are on way opposite ends of ideological spectrums will still work together when there's a reason. And I'm grateful for that. You know, God uh, blesses unity. And so there's some good things going on. Now, on behalf of our church family, Pastor Bobby and all the pastors here, I just want to thank tonight, especially, I want to thank our county executive, Mark Molinero, and his team. I know that they're working tirelessly. They've been way out in front of this for a while now, and they're working very hard. And so I would ask you, church family, to join me in just 
thanking them, appreciating them for their work. I'd also like to thank all of the health professionals, the doctors, the nurses, the support staff in all of the hospitals, all of the ambulances, the people that are testing. We are grateful for for what you're doing. We know it's a sacrifice that you're putting yourself at risk uh, for our sake, and we're grateful for what you're doing. We're also grateful to all of the grocers, all of the supply line people that are still going to work every day, uh, whether they want to or feel comfortable with it or not, they're still doing it, and we're grateful for you as well. And so on behalf of our church, we'd just like to say thank you to all of those people. And for, for you as a church body and even beyond our county, I want you to know that we're praying for you, that we're hoping for you. And, and I know that you're praying for us, and so there's still the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the body in spite of the difficulty of the times that we're going through. And I would just ask you with me right now, if you're watching, tuning in, I just want to pray for all of those people just briefly, because God says if we agree together, then, then he will do and move on our behalf. So can we just pray together? Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, for, for all of those that are serving us, all of those that are in harm's way right now, and we just pray that you'd sustain them, that you'd put a hedge around them and keep them healthy, and that you'd show us how we can support and help them as well. So we pray that you would please continue to insulate and protect our county, our church, our people, and even our nation and our world right now. Lord, we receive even the discipline that this is, and we ask you, Lord, that we would respond accordingly, that you would move us by your spirit, and in this time, Lord, where we find ourselves more isolated and slowed down, We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of quick announcements before we get into the word tonight. First of all, this coming Sunday is Communion Sunday. And though we cannot be together in the room communing, we will still have the communion portion of our service. So if you can... Gather some grape juice and some bread. It doesn't have to be matzo cracker or any particular type. And get your family around and come to the table of the Lord. The word says that by his stripes we are healed. And so please join us this Sunday for Communion Sunday. And also, next Wednesday night, there is no midweek service. And the reason for that is because next Friday night is Good Friday, and we will have Good Friday service live-streamed just like we're doing right now. And so we invite you to join us for our Good Friday service, and we will also have communion that night. And so if there's some leftover bread or you can get enough, uh, save some for next Friday night as well as we celebrate Good Friday as a church uh, together. And then finally, one last announcement. Um, the, the, The county, Dutchess County... Is, is doing some things right now to prepare for the worst if the worst should come. And what they have asked of us specifically, Calvary Chapel, the Hudson Valley, is that, is that if we could put together a crew of people, about 25 people, men and women, that would be willing to serve in a very low-risk capacity. So you're not going to be exposed directly to people, but what they need is hands and feet. And here's the criteria. They need people with common sense that don't need to be told what to do every minute and people that are willing to stay busy. So you're a servant, you're diligent. If you've ever been in our church for an event when there's something going on for a men's day or a woman's brunch or something, and you kind of leave the solid ground and it's chaotic, you come maybe in here and do something for a moment and you go back and it's clean and put back together. And you think, who did this? I know that's you guys. And so the county is asking us for 25 people that can serve in that way. So here's what you do if you're willing to serve. Please contact the church office, whether by telephone or by email, and just give your name, your mobile number, and your availability throughout the week. It's, I, that's all really the details that I have right now. It's probably going to be a two- or three-week thing that will work on a rotating schedule, four or five people at a time. So the more people we get, you know, obviously you know the lighter the burden is. So if you're willing to volunteer, please don't delay. Right? Make a note for yourself. Contact the church tomorrow. In fact, you could even... No, don't do it now because you're listening to the service, but you can call and leave a message and we'll get that message as well. And so uh, that's it for announcements. Now, I want to tonight, I want to drop a Matthew 18 on you. And if you know what that means already, 
then I have to pre-apologize because probably Matthew 18 has been used on you in a way that's been abusive, negative, or wrong. But tonight we're going to get into the text of Matthew chapter 18. We're going to see what Jesus actually has to say to us uh, in his word. So one more time, I know we've prayed, but let's just one last time ask God to give us ears to hear what his spirit would say to us before we get into the text. So Father, we know you're with us. We know you've heard us. And so we're asking you, Lord, now, please, would you anoint your word? Would you speak to us and give us ears to hear what you want to say tonight? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus says this. It says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, And said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew's message And I believe the reason why the Gospel of Matthew is recorded first in the New Testament is because he is demonstrating Jesus as the one who is heralding or bringing in the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, as it is spoken of and, and introduced by Jesus, is not something new. It's something that has always existed but it's unseen by the naked eye. And Jesus came into the world to make us not only aware of it, but to open the gates to it and to invite whosoever would to enter into that kingdom and to become a citizen of it. Now, his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God will never have a seat at the United Nations. They will never have a vote on global issues or a part in human government. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's not a republic. It's not even a monarchy in the classical sense. The kingdom of God is what we would call a pure theocracy, meaning that it's ruled by God alone, and he is the complete government of his kingdom. Now, in the realm of men, that sounds unsettling to have one ruler who carries the entirety of the government upon his shoulders. Because we've seen what happens when one man has absolute authority. But with God, it's completely different. Because the Bible tells us concerning our God that he is holy, that he's harmless, that he's undefiled, and that he's separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. And what that means is that when God judges or rules, he does it with perfection. He upholds all things and sustains all things by his own right hand and power. He rules in perfect wisdom, and his character is righteousness and truth. Now, the high purpose of God's kingdom is pure relationship. Because God is perfectly sufficient in and of himself, meaning that he has need of absolutely nothing. He doesn't need an economy, and therefore he doesn't need citizens to build it or support it. He's not in any need of having servants or helpers, because if he needed servants or helpers, he could just create systems or cyborgs to do the things that he needs. But he doesn't need servants. He didn't build a kingdom and call us into it so that we could serve him. He didn't even create citizens of a kingdom because he was in need of some honor in and of himself to be honored by his creation. We honor God, but that's not why he made it. So why then did God make this kingdom? What's it for? The answer, for holy, unbroken, complete, transparent, and selfless union of life, relationship. First, between God and his people, and secondarily, between his people amongst themselves. That's what God wants. That's his purpose. Now, the constitution of his kingdom is freedom based upon faith and understanding, obedience. So we obey what he says 
because we believe his ways are right and we understand him to be true. And so it's a freedom that's based on obedience that's rooted in faith and understanding. Now here's his invitation. The invitation of Jesus is to all that are willing to come through the door that he provided. If you will receive that invitation on his terms, it means that you have faith, you believe who he says he is, that he is God and that he is all that he says he is recorded in his word, and also that you are everything that he says you are, which means fallen, flawed, and insufficient to rule yourself. And so to respond to his invitation is to come in faith that both of those things are true. It's also then to surrender to his lordship, his leadership, and his ways. And here's the big one. To receive the invitation into his kingdom means total abandonment of your citizenship in this world in order to obtain citizenship in his. You cannot have dual citizenship both on earth and in kingdom. You can live in earth and be a citizen of the kingdom, but you can't be a citizen of both. You renounce citizenship of this world in order to obtain it in his. Now I say all of that to say this, that Jesus is calling people both in the text and in today's world to leave this world system and to become citizens of his kingdom. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, in that we become citizens of his kingdom, everything changes in our life. Now, listen, you understand the concept of naturalization, right? If one person becomes a citizen, they, they transfer from one country to another country, they go through a process of assimilation, learning the values, cultures, laws, and ways of the kingdom or nation that they are transferring into. And so as we become citizens of the kingdom of God that Jesus is heralding, there's a naturalization process, we call it discipleship, where we learn what it means to be citizens of heaven. And so as the disciples of Jesus are walking with him and we're following them through in the Gospel of Matthew, we are seeing them become disciples or naturalized citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we've seen that as we've gone through. They've learned the constitution. They've learned the culture. They've learned the current. They're learning the values. But tonight they learn another lesson, and so do we. And that is kingdom honor. Kingdom honor. It's what I want to share with you tonight. It's the title of tonight's message. Now, in the middle of the 1800s, there around, Charles Darwin wrote Origin of Species. And probably you've heard of that before. It is his theory, and today the most widely accepted theory amongst non-believing scientists, of origins, where we came from, where the universe began. Now, it is based, the precept, the concept, the principle, the premise, on an origin of order in the universe that is absent the existence of God. So the ruling system is dominance by, or I'm sorry, dominion by, or gosh, basically it's survival of the fittest. When we have survival of the fittest, that's how it works. And so it resonated with people and it gathered traction because survival of the fittest really is the ruling system of the fallen world. Everything that exists in the world that we're in today in nature, in science, and in government, government works on the terms of a hierarchy. The higher you climb, the better your chances are to survive, and so therefore the value of our society is to move up. If I move up, then I can survive. Therefore, power, money, fame, talent, strength, those things become instruments and insulators that ensure my survival because I am on the top. So those with the highest amounts of those things in this world system, they are honored, they're elevated, and they're esteemed. And so honor in the world system is the byproduct of accomplishment and ability. 
And, and this really is all that any of us have ever known, seen, or observed because we live in a world like that. And so we understand the concept that if you want to rule, then you've got to win, okay? Now, the disciples have only ever known that system, the system of dominate or die. Thus, as they're walking with Jesus, they still have in their eye the esteem for power, for authority, for respect, and for honor that's based on hierarchy. And so amongst them, these 12 apostles that Jesus has called, there is a pecking order that they are beginning to try to work their way into. They figure that up is the way up, but yet they see in Jesus something other. They see a king pronouncing a kingdom talking about authority, but yet he's preaching the cross. And something doesn't line up in their minds between what Jesus is like and what Jesus is saying and what they perceive a king or the glory of a kingdom to represent. And so it urges them to then ask the question that they do in chapter 18. They come to Jesus and they say, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? We want to understand how honor works in the realm of your kingdom. And so Jesus illustrates, he starts a sermon by calling a little child unto him and setting him right in the midst of them. And he says to them, as we read, that unless you are converted and you become like little children, that you shall not enter the kingdom of God, and whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, I love what it says in the verse, because it says that he took a child, and he set him in the midst. And you could just imagine what it was like if all of them are gathered around in a circle. And in their minds, they're all jockeying for the closest position. They want the seats on the right hand and on the left hand of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they're working it out. Like, I'm smarter than he is. I know I could could get my way. And, And they ask the question. And then Jesus just steps outside of the circle. And he takes a child, a nameless child, who is completely irrelevant in the scheme of who's there, And he brings the child into the midst and gives that child the place of greatest honor in the midst of all of these great men. And what amazes me is that that is something that God has loved to do from the very beginning. When you just read the Bible, you see that God has taken a child and set him in the midst all the way back as far as we can read. Joseph was the youngest of all of his brothers, And God took Joseph the child and set him in the midst of all of these men that wanted to jockey for the position that they might someday receive. We read of young Samuel, who was born into an established system, a system that had a hold, it had roots, it was strong. There was a hierarchy and a priesthood, and there was an established order of things. But God took a small child, Samuel, and brought him into the midst. He did the same thing with David. It was an established kingdom, and David was the youngest in an established household. And Samuel, now old, appointed to ordain the next king, goes to Jesse's house, and he sees all of the older brothers that were honorable and strong, but yet God said, I haven't chosen any of them. Go out in the field and look for the child. And it says that David was young, he was ruddy, he wasn't even worth bringing in. But God said, that's the one that I've chosen. I've taken a child and I've set him in the midst. The same thing with Jesus. Jesus really was a child in the midst of a system that was well-established, well-insulated, ready to keep any threat outside. But yet God took Jesus, a child, set him in the midst. And Jesus, reigning in humility, bringing no honor or glory to himself, was elevated to the place of greatness. And now Jesus illustrates this way of God by bringing a child right into the midst. And then he says, listen, guys, you've got it all wrong. If you want to be great in my kingdom, then it is going to require a conversion. That's the word that Jesus uses. He says, you've got to be converted and become like this little child. I love that word, converted. You know what it is? It's a, it's a conjunction of two words. 
conversion is con, is contrasting, and verted is version. And so he's saying that you need to become a contrasting version of what you are right now. Essentially, you guys, Jesus is saying, are looking up. And you're seeking to establish greatness based upon a climbing upwards. But you need to become a contrasting version of that. And you need to begin to look down. And Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you've got to, here's the word, ready for it? We don't like it. Humble yourself and become like this little child. That's the first element of honor that Jesus illustrates in this great chapter, this red chapter that answers the question of greatness in the kingdom of God. That if you want honor in God's kingdom, then step number one, really it's step number 100 as well, is humility. Is to be converted and to stop climbing upward and to turn your eyes and your aim and begin to look downward. And humility really takes on two characteristics as Jesus points it out here. First of all, in the way that you see yourself. He says that you need to begin to see yourself more as a child and less like nobility. He says you've got to become like a child. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? Because I know Jesus isn't saying that you need to become childish, but yet you need to become childlike. What does it mean to be childlike? Well, just Think about for a moment the defining attributes of what makes a child a child. A child is dependent. There's dependency in the heart of a child on those people that are looking after the child. There's a sense of discovery. There's a teachability. There's a relational equality, meaning that children don't look at other kids for the most part, and size them up and divide them and classify them into race or income level or skill level or education level. They just see another child that looks about their age and say, hey, you want to throw a baseball around? And they could be best friends with someone who is completely different than they are. There's relational equality. There's simplicity. There's naivety. There's resiliency. They're quick to bounce back if they're offended or injured. They're forgetful concerning the things that offend them. They're empathetic, and they tend to be sensitive. They still have the ability to feel emotions and feel sensitivity towards someone else who's hurting. And really, probably one of the great things about being a child is the invincibility. Do you remember what that was like when you thought you could do whatever you wanted and nothing would kill you or harm you? There's like a faith in that, that a child will just do anything. And Jesus is saying these are qualities that make you honorable in the kingdom of God. When you're not so independent that you think you're self-sufficient, but yet you're willing to be dependent upon your father and look to him more and more. You know, the longer I walk with the Lord myself, the more I understand what the apostle Paul meant when he said that in my weakness, that's where I'm strong. Because what I'm finding in my own life is the areas where I'm the most competent Those are the areas where I seem to experience the least amount of supernatural power pushing forward my efforts. I find it easy to do the things I'm good at, but I don't sense the blessing of God so much in them. On the contrary, the places where I'm weak, where I feel like I've got nothing, it's in those areas that it seems to always work out. That's dependency. And to become childlike means that we're more and more dependent on the Father and less and less self-sufficient in and of ourselves. I would think that the number one aspect of childlikeness that gets the attention of God is that we don't think too highly of ourselves. You know what's amazing about children is that children really have nothing to boast of. I mean, they boast still. Like, you know, kids will be in school with other kids and they'll say, man, you should see I've got this and I've got, you know, a house with 17 million rooms and 4,000 acres and I've got toys and things. And, and the other kids go, wow. But, but really, at the end of the day, the child has nothing. Those are the parents' things. The parent bestowed all of that. The kid just gets to enjoy them. They can't boast really about anything. And I think that when we see ourselves properly, we understand that everything that we have really belongs to our Father, no matter what it is, and it removes boasting. There's a humility that comes because we're not thinking so highly of ourselves. There's another expression of humility, and that is in the way that we see others or the way that we look at others. Notice what Jesus says in verse 5. 
He says that whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. Now, to receive him, to receive a child, means to let them in. It means to connect with them. It means to relate with them and understand where they're at. And Jesus is saying that when you look at people with a willingness to build them up and to thrust them higher than you, even if it's just a child who can add nothing to you, no advantage, no grace, nothing. They're a child, but when you allow them in and you receive them into your life, that is evidence that you're seeing people the right way. You're looking to move them forward. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11 It says something very interesting. It says that even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. And I love that verse because essentially what it is saying is that what a child is going to be when they're mature is already in them when they're young. And that means that when we receive a child, when we look at them with respect and honor and we seek to breathe into their life, we are coming under and we're supporting what they already are that one day they will be. And that's an amazing privilege that we have that are older to be able to partake in the future that isn't manifested yet when we have nothing to gain from it. What an amazing privilege. That's what God does for us, and it's what he calls us to do for others. And so we're to pay respect forward. The way we see ourselves, the way we see others, it's humility. Now, in verses 6 through 9, Jesus says, listen, be careful that you don't stumble one of these little ones. Don't throw something in front of them that's going to trip up their development or that's going to hijack their faith or that in any other way is going to harm their future growth because God doesn't look too pleasantly or kindly on people that stumble kids. But he sums it up in verse 10 by saying this. He says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Despise means look down at. Don't think of them as nothing or think of them as less. He says, For I say to you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, that is, in heaven. Then Jesus connects this parable to it that really gives to us the second quality of what brings honor to us in the kingdom. And that is, God honors those that are a covering for others and that preserve the sanctity of someone else. Watch how Jesus illustrates it here. It's a classic parable, but watch the application. Verse 11. He says, for the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. So that's the theme, the point of the parable moving forward. He wants to save something that was lost. Well, what was lost? What was lost in man was his whole unfallen condition. His relationship with God and that which made him what he was intended to be. But that was lost when Adam sinned and death passed upon humanity through his sin We lost that relationship with God and we lost the elements that made us whole in our soul. Jesus came to restore that. Now watch this. He says, How think ye, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them is gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep, the one that was found, than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. Now, we all have probably heard this parable, and we understand this parable. It makes perfect sense to us what Jesus is saying. But listen to the way Jesus applies this parable in this particular context. Watch this, verse 14. He says, even so, so just like the shepherd rejoices over the sheep that was lost and is found, even so, in the same way, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones, these kids, should perish. Now, what does that mean? Why does Jesus apply that parable in this way? I want you to think about this for a minute. If you were that shepherd and you lost one sheep out of uh, 100 sheep, 
and you went and you risked your life and you left the flock and you traversed mountains and hills and you found that sheep tattered, maybe on the brink of walking off a cliff, tangled up in a, a bramble of thorns. And, and, and you can't believe that you found it. You're amazed that, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I found the sheep. And so you gather the sheep, you bring it back into the fold, and you're rejoicing that you found the sheep. Now listen, for the rest of your time tending that flock, you will never forget that sheep. And when someone comes to you and says, are these your sheep? You say, yeah, these are all my sheep. But that one, that one there, that one is special to me. Because that one was lost, it wandered off, and I found it. And I, I'll never forget that particular sheep. And what Jesus is saying is this, listen, is that when there is a child who is well-tended and well-invested in, and that child is preserved and kept, and that child is encouraged and insulated from evil, and that child does not become lost, but they grow up in the things of God, God looks at that child in the same way he looks at a sheep that was lost and is now found. Even so, it is not the will of your father that one of these little ones perish. I remember very early on in my Christian life, I was born again right at the tail end of the Jesus movement. Really, I kind of caught the afterglow of it. It was the late 1990s, and, and kind of the tailwinds of it were blowing through the area where I lived. And we kind of grew up in the Lord, me and the people that were my age at the time, on the stories of the hippies that were saved out of degenerate lifestyles. So these were drug addicts and people that had lost half their brain and, you know, just crazy stories of how God supernaturally put lives together. And we were constantly hearing these stories and telling these stories about how God saved these people out of such dire conditions. And I remember on one particular night, there was a young lady who came up to me and she was in her early 20s and she said to me, after a service, she said, I feel a little discouraged. And I said, why? What's going on? And she said, well, she goes, I was brought up in a Christian home and I was cultivated in spiritual things. And I, I did put my faith in Christ and he is my God and he saved me. But I feel like he's never going to really be able to use me because I wasn't a junkie or a gang member or a prostitute. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, maybe you're right. No, just kidding. I didn't think that at all. But what I've realized is that some of the people that never really fell away, they don't have this dramatic testimony of how they, they went off the deep end and then came back, but they just put their faith in Christ from a young age and they continued with him. Some of them have been the greatest to impact the kingdom of God and the world that they live in. I think of like young Samuel or young Daniel or young Joseph. They never fell away from God. They just put their faith in him and they stayed true to him and they made a great impact. I think of the people that have had the greatest impact in my life. And really, the people that have impacted me the most, their testimony and story is that they were brought up in the things of God and they never fell away. Now, that doesn't mean that if you did fall away or you got saved later or something that God has no use for you. But don't think, young person who might be listening to my voice, that just because you put your faith in Christ from a young age, that therefore God can't use you as greatly. And parent, listen to me very carefully. So into the life of your child, because God already sees what they will become. And you have an amazing opportunity to be raising maybe the next Billy Graham, or maybe the next Samuel, or the next Daniel. We don't know what God has in store but he has his eyes and his angels watching our kids. Invest in them. Breathe into them. Honor from God comes as we preserve and cover our kids. Jesus moves from here, and he talks about the third thing that brings honor in the kingdom of God. Are you ready for it? It's a big one. It's unity. Watch verse 15. He says, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, then go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he will hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. 
And if he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto you as a heathen and as a publican or a tax collector. For verily I say unto you that whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, this is probably one of the most controversial and probably one of the most abused and misused passages in the entirety of the New Testament. It concerns the most powerful force on the entire planet, and that is what the Bible calls unity. Now, I want you to listen to what this passage is saying so that you can understand what it's not saying. First of all, in the passage, the sin that is spoken of, the trespass, is an individual person sinning against another individual person. This isn't speaking of the person who fell into prostitution or into, like, gross drug use or something like that. This is talking about an offense that happens between two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister. There's no mention here of the unpardonable sin or something that's worthy of someone being disfellowshipped. So the sin is against an individual. Then, secondly, in this process of creating and maintaining unity, there is a crucial conversation. That means a one-on-one between the two people that are involved in this situation. I call it a crucial conversation because sometimes there are some crucial conversations that are uncomfortable and that are difficult to have, and sometimes we would rather avoid having those conversations. But for the sake of preserving unity, it is essential that sometimes we have a conversation with a person that has offended us and we sense that there's a rift because of it. Now, in that conversation, we keep it between ourselves because you can't have unity when there's been a a breach without a conversation. And so it's between two people. Now, if there's no resolution on the other side of that conversation then the next step is to bring it to mediation, meaning that you're going to bring in one or two other impartial people that can hear both sides and help you sift through the conflict in order to bring an understanding to the issue and then resolve it so that unity can then continue. And so you're in mediation. You want wisdom to help. Now, if you still can't come to a resolution... Under that, now you look beyond the small circle and you resort to tribal pressure, meaning that the power and the importance of unity amongst the people of God is so great that now you say, hey, there is something that is risking our potency as a fellowship as a group of people, as a salt and light source in the world, and we need to get this resolved. And so you get more people involved that will put pressure on someone who maybe is being stubborn. And if even that doesn't work, this is what you got to understand. Here's what Jesus says what you do next, is that you treat that person, the the person who offended you, you treat them like a heathen or a publican. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that you have delivered them over to Satan. How did Jesus treat a heathen or a publican? He treated them with the highest honor and the highest respect and with the most love that he could extend towards them. And yet there were boundaries in place because there's a rift that hasn't yet been settled. And so what Jesus is saying is that if you cannot come to terms of mediation with the person, then you treat them with the highest honor and you give them the most love that you absolutely can do, but you understand that there is boundaries. 
That you don't have to, that person has been broken in fellowship with you because of the issue that's been going on in your life. And you do all of this in the power of God. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so critical? Because when you look at what God says about unity on the pages of Scripture, you understand that unity is one of the most powerful forces in the entire universe. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 6, God looked at the Tower of Babel and he saw the people unified in a non-productive cause. And he said this. He said that the Lord said, Behold, the people are one and they have all one language and this they begin to do and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. That God looked at even unity amongst people that didn't have his spirit or his force behind them, and he realized or said that there's nothing that's going to be impossible to them. Listen to what the psalmist says. It's Psalm 133 concerning the the preciousness of unity to God, the value and honor it is. He says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Aaron was the high priest, a picture of Jesus Christ, that went down to the skirts of his garments. It covered the whole body. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, I don't know about you, but I want the blessing of God on my life. We want the blessing of God on our church, on our community, and at this time, especially upon our country. And God says that he responds when he sees the force of unity, the value of unity being maintained and held. When you read John chapter 17, which is Jesus' final prayer he prayed just before going to the cross, and he communed with the Father on earth for the final time, and he prayed for future generations of believers... Five times in that prayer, he prayed that his people would be one with a bond that was equivalent to the father's bond with the son. That they would be one like you and I are one. Jesus knows the importance of unity. The two greatest revivals that ever took place in the history of humanity, they're recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8, and Acts chapter 2. And they are both prefaced by saying that the people were one. They came together in Nehemiah's day as one man. In Acts chapter 2, it says that the people came together with one mind. There was unity that that's where the Spirit of God moved in the most powerful way. And now what Jesus says to us here, right in this text, he says in verse 18, that when there's unity... Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Unity has the power to move the hand of God. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth as touching anything that they will ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. When there is true unity between people that are praying, no boundaries, transparency, acceptance, and love, then there's power in that prayer, and you will move the hand of God. And then Jesus tells us where he lives, verse 20. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. He doesn't live in buildings. He doesn't live in temples or churches. He lives in unity. That is his house. And if you want God in your house, in your life, in your church, then be a person that pursues and maintains unity at all costs. Because where there is unity, there's traction, there's progress, and there's power. And that's why Satan hates unity and he loves division. That's why Satan would love to see our country 50% Democrat and 50% Republican. It's why he would love to see division between nations because there's power in unity. Psalm chapter 34 Verse 12 says this. He says, What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? I hope that's you. It's me. Then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Listen, seek peace and pursue it. Go after peace. 
If you have a rift with another brother or sister, settle the rift. Get it right. It happens all the time in churches. There will be a Christian business owner in a church, and someone else in the same church will start a similar business in the same town, and it will cause a rift between those two people. The one will say, they're stealing my clientele, and the other will say, no, I have a a niche here that you're not meeting, and I have a passion for this, and this is where God has planted me. Both people have a cause. They need to come together, air it out on the table, and find a place of understanding. You cannot afford, we cannot afford, to be divided in the body of Christ. There must be unity. And where there's misunderstanding, where there's offense, there cannot be, listen, there cannot be separation before there is conversation mediation, and pressure from the tribe. There must be a pursuit of unity. It is that important to God, and it is that critical for our survival and traction in the body of Christ. And furthermore, it's what God says he will honor. It is a part of greatness in the body of Christ. The final thing that Jesus mentions in terms of what is honorable to him is another word that sometimes we don't like, and that is forgiveness. Peter hears this, and probably he's processing it, and he's looking around at people that he was offended at for things that they said and did. And Peter might have even been a little offended at Jesus. He was just called Satan a couple days ago. And he's struggling with some things, and so he, he kind of thinks this through a little bit, and he asks Jesus a question, verse 21. It says that Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And probably he was thinking that he was pious. But Jesus said unto him, I say not unto you until seven times. Peter, oh, good, that's that's a lot. Jesus says, but until 70 times seven, or 490, literally unlimited amount of times. Therefore, Jesus says, and now he gives a parable, and I want you to listen to this parable because it illustrates forgiveness. He says, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. So the audit has been issued. He wants to know how the money is being spent. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Now that is a massive amount of money. And when he had begun to reckon, or I'm sorry, verse 25, but for as much as he, this debtor, had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. Listen, you can't pay the debt, I'm calling it in. Then you're going to liquefy all of your assets and I'm going to collect the money that way. But the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him. He humbled himself before him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him. He released him from the debt. And he forgave him the debt. But then that same servant, the one who was just forgiven of an insurmountable debt, went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. That's a very small amount of money in comparison to what he was just forgiven. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet And besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Now, verse 30. He would not, but went and cast him into the prison. Rather than granting him release, he calls for chains and brings him into bondage because of this small debt, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all that was done. And so word now reaches back to the king who forgave the first debt. So his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me. Should not you also have had compassion on your fellow servant even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So this guy now gets his day in court. His debt is reinstated and he's now on the hook for everything that he was previously forgiven of. 
Verse 35, here's the application. So likewise, Peter, seven times, shall my heavenly Father do also to you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Think about for just a moment, when God forgives you of all of your sin, how much sin you have actually been forgiven. Because when God forgives your sin, he forgives every sin, past, present, and the future sin that you haven't even created yet. Notice that in this parable, it's called debt. Seven times, in fact, it's referred to as debt. In verses 24, 27, 28, 29, 30, 32, and 34. Jesus actually taught us when we pray for forgiveness, that we're to pray, forgive us our debts, our sins, as we forgive our debtors, those that have sinned against us. And so the debt in the parable is a picture of sin. Now, release of the debt is likened unto forgiveness of the sin. God has forgiven us many sins, and we are called to forgive those who sin against us because no matter what anyone has done to you, it pales in comparison to what you have done in offense to God. So debt, release. Notice in verse 35 the word heart. I want you to mark that word. He says, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do to you if you don't forgive from the heart those that have sinned against you. Think about that for a minute. Because that means that it isn't enough for me to just say, I forgive you. I forgive you. But yet I'm holding a secret scorecard in my heart and keeping track of everything that they did to me that was wrong. If I'm keeping tabs on what people did to me by way of offense and I'm holding on to those things, then I haven't forgiven them in my heart. I might have said the words, but I'm still holding the grudge. I haven't released the debt. That's an amazing thing to think about because what Jesus is telling us, he's saying, listen, is that we are not to have paper in our hearts. We're not even to write it down. We're to make a transaction between us, God, and that person that they are completely forgiven and they owe us nothing. They don't owe us some future accident (laughs) or something terrible that would happen to them because of what they did to us. They don't deserve their day in court. We have released them completely from the debt. There's two other words I want you to recognize in this parable because they really make us understand how this works. First of all, the word patience, which appears twice, and the word compassion, which appears twice. The debtor said, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And you've got to understand in this thing of forgiveness... Patience is vital. And patience is vital on two counts. You need patience for two things. The first thing that you need patience for is you need patience with the person while they're still changing. Because a person who sinned against us might still be just as sinfully offensive towards us after we've forgiven them. And we have to have patience while they figure out that they're flawed. That requires patience. There's another element of patience, another reason for patience, and that is this, is that when I forgive from the heart and I say, I forgive you for what you did to me, even though it was extremely painful, it was extremely harmful, and it cost me a lot, it requires patience for the pain of what they did to go away. Meaning, I've forgiven you, and I've intended to do it from my heart, but the pain of the offense is still there. And so the temptation to hold a grudge still exists within me. And it requires patience to wait while God reconciles in my heart what I've reconciled in heaven. And so I need patience. You say, well, where do you find that patience? It's the other word, compassion. Compassion means company passion or company emotions, meaning I feel for you. I'm empathetic or sympathetic to who you are as a person. And I realize that if I was you or if I was in your position, I probably would have done the same thing that you did. Maybe I wouldn't in the condition I'm in, but if I was in the condition you're in, if I had the history you had, I probably would have done the same thing. 
That's compassion. And compassion empowers patience. And so all of these things are vital, but they're necessary. Here's the final bottom line, is that honor is the byproduct of the value of patience practiced in the life of God's people. Do you understand? Listen, we all seek honor. Honor is something that God has given. He's given us an appetite for honor. That doesn't even need to be said. When we read in the Bible about vessels unto honor and vessels unto dishonor, which one do you want to be? I want to be a vessel unto honor. Paul talked about those who by patient continuance and well-being seek for glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what do you want? Do you want dishonor at the appearance of Christ? No, we want to be honored. That's something that God has placed with inside of us. And so God doesn't ever condemn a desire for greatness or a desire for honor. He holds it up. I mean, how did God motivate Abraham? He said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you honorable. How did God motivate David? You're going to be the king and shepherd over my people. You're going to build my house and I'm going to build you a house. That's a great honor. God motivates us with honor. We're supposed to want honor. The difference is in the pathway by which we receive it. We are not to operate according to the ways of this world, value by talent, power, domination, hierarchy, demanding respect of people, manipulating people to think more highly of ourselves than what we ourselves know we are. That's not the pathway to honor in the kingdom of God. The pathway to honor before God is humility, to think of myself soberly and to elevate other people. It's to preserve and breathe life into those that are less than me and hope from my heart that they do better than I actually do. It's to pursue peace and hold the bands of unity together in the body of Christ. That's honorable with God. And it's to live a life of forbearance and forgiveness from my heart. That's the pathway towards honor that God gives to us. Not the wrong kind. Jesus said, John chapter 12, verse 26, he said, if any man serve me, him will my father honor. And I want you to think about the honor that motivated Jesus. In John chapter 17, again, it's that prayer that Jesus prayed just before going to heaven for the final time. In verse 5, Jesus says something amazing. He says this, he's finished his mission, except for the cross, which he knows he's completing. And he says this, he says, and now, O Father, I finished the work that you've given me to do, so glorify thou me with the glory, or with your own self, and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Think about it for a moment, that every day that Jesus was on earth, he hungered for the honor and the glory that he had being at the Father's side. That's what motivated him every single day. It drove him. He could care less about the honor that came from people. He purposefully avoided that kind of honor, knowing what was in man and knowing how frail and how temporary that honor actually was. But he was driven by the honor that he would have being again in glory with the Father. That moved Jesus. And I want you to listen to what the Bible says to you and me. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you what it says. The Apostle Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not think he was stealing anything to be called equal with God, but he humbled himself to be found in the form of a servant, and he was made in the likeness of men. He made himself of no reputation. And then he humbled himself even more and he went to the death of the cross, which was the most humiliating of all deaths. And he died and he went to the grave, bearing the reproach and the sin of everyone else, thrusting them upwards. And you know what the result of that was? It says that because of this, God raised him and highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Here is the mind that God encourages you and I to have. It's humiliation. It's lowliness. 
It's going down under and thrusting others up higher. This is the value of honor in the kingdom of God. It's what we're to crave, the glory that will be revealed when we stand before him and he looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the one who is greatest in the kingdom of God. My prayer for you is that you would find this place of honor in your own heart, that you would cease from the striving to try to become something or be something in this world's eyes, something that is so temporary and fleeting that as soon as you're not as useful anymore, they'll throw you to the curb, but that you would seek the honor that comes from serving Christ. God says this. He says, those that honor me will I honor, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. I pray that God would teach you, would teach me what it means to honor him. Listen, it starts with a conversion. It's impossible to honor God if you haven't had Jesus by his spirit come into your heart and teach you these things from the inside. It's one thing to hear what I'm saying. It's another thing to feel it because Jesus is inside your life. That's what it means to be converted, a contrasting version of what you are right now. And part of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is that he made the way for you and I to be forgiven of our sins completely so that Jesus could come inside and we could know what it means to have his spirit and his grace making these things real in our hearts and in our lives. And if you don't know the honor it is to have Jesus living inside of you, then I want to invite you right now and say, Jesus made the way, he opened the doors, and he is willing to allow you citizenship in his kingdom if you will but say, Lord, I know that I'm insufficient of myself and I'm willing to become a child under the lordship and leadership of your perfect character and I receive your forgiveness and I want you in my life and I want to follow you. I want citizenship in your kingdom. Let me pursue day by day this life of the cross that you preached that I might know the eternal glory of what it means to be your child, the child of your father, eternal in the heavens. Open your heart to Jesus tonight if you haven't. If you have, let this be a prodding, a reminder to you and I of the glory that awaits in the pathway that we would find it. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us in your hand. We ask, Lord, that you would give us unity as a church, that you would give us love for one another, that you would show us, Lord, where there's adjustment that needs to be made and that our hearts would be set right before you. So bless us tonight. We ask you and thank you, Lord, for your grace in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us in our closing song, would you? Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.